Hello and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa, and the podcast is in partnership with PR Daily, which is the preeminent brand for public relations professionals delivering news, advice, opinions, and benchmarking via PRDaily.com. Join me there to find more episodes for the podcast. And if you like the podcast, please do leave a review and share it with your colleagues so that more folks can find it online. Thanks so much. Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Sometimes I'm lucky enough to catch a counterpart or a a colleague who does exactly what I do in another part of the world. And that to me is the coolest because we get to share stories about how we got into this business and how it's changed over the course of time and how uh, the world is different from when we first got going in communications. I'm lucky enough today to be joined by Robin Shallow, who's the founder of Robin Communications and was nominated by my good friend, Alan Locker, who is the host of The Locker Room. Robin, thank you so much for being with me today. You got it. Thanks for having me. This will be fun. So, uh, Robin Communications, before we get there, you and I went to school at a time when having a degree in communications was nearly impossible to figure out how to navigate and land our first thing. Tell me a little bit about your background, Robin, and how you got to be where you are today. Well, I, I feel like I'm 100 years old because there wasn't a communications degree at Pepperdine University. Mm-hmm. It was telecommunications. And right. ask me today what that means. I have actually no idea. It sounds like I'm an engineer, and I, I'm definitely not an engineer. So my degree was telecommunications, which really included broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And exactly what you said, um, you could either become a newscaster or figure out something else. And I, I thought I was going to be Katie Couric for a really long time. And <laughs> then I did two shows on the air and decided I was much better behind the scenes. And that's right. where I should live. <laughs> and, and, and thus a career was born of being behind the scenes, but still working on a narrative and, and, and creating a storyline, but not being responsible for telling the story on air. Right, right. Did you stay in California or did you come back to the East Coast after you finished school? Right. I did. I I stayed at um, in the Los Angeles area Mm -hmm. and I worked for Disney. I was, um, you know, and also this was a long time ago. So honestly, you didn't get a job and start in a role. There were people that started as bicycle messengers Mm -hmm. and I started as a secretary. And I was asked, you know, I was I was sitting between two other women in an office in international and one had literally been a dictation person for Walt. Wow. Um, and so she was barely breathing, lovely, but barely yeah. breathing. Yeah. And then and another woman um, that was kind of an angry woman and me. And and so they'd come into the room and say, uh, does anyone want to take dictation? And I would raise my hand. I had no idea how to do dictation. I had a college degree. Right. Um, but I would run in and just write fast. <laughs> and a star was born. I mean, it was as sad as that. But, um, and it took me eight years to move from assistant to a, you know, what I consider a, a, a professional job, you right. know, a, a job that relied on my credentials and, and, um, and I watched my 
very close guy friends start as managers and it took me eight years to get there. Yeah. Um, I'm still very bitter about it. Honestly, I'm still really yeah. bitter about it. Yeah. But it's just, it was, you know, that was your way in. And I don't know that there are companies with secretaries anymore. I feel like that's kind of gone to the wayside, but I did see a really cool thing the other day where um, CEOs are calling these administrative executives, which really are far more than that and really run so much behind the scenes that they're calling them business partners. And I think that's really a title that is justified. And I'm really kind of psyched about it. Yeah. Well, there's been so much adjustment in in the office space itself, right? I mean, I'm hearing more and more stories about how the communicators are being brought into the C-suite, excuse me, and they are more in the conversation from the beginning rather than being brought in at the end to, to manage the rollout of whatever it is they've come up with in the C-suite. Um, and I love that, but you're absolutely right. And I, that is not, um, something that really, it continues to evolve and change and I'm grateful for that. But when I, I worked here in Washington in the white house liaison office, which is a really a part of the HR, uh, practice of, bringing people in for uh, for various positions in the administration and a lot of times it was it was always easier to bring in young women into positions of administrative than it was for young men and there was just a willingness on the side of the young women to like do whatever it took to get the foothold and to get moving up and that to me that was i mean gosh it was only 20 years ago so not really that long ago that we were still sort of in that kind of stance but that is cool to hear business partner. I love that. Yeah, me too. I think it's a a worthy title. And so you were at Disney for some time. Yes, I was at Disney for some time in the, in the television space. Mm -hmm. And and actually that's where I met Alan Locker and uh, moved to New York and continued with Disney there and decided um, that I, I had done a little bit of work in public relations, but decided that if I was going to roll out a campaign, I really wanted to practice and work on rolling out campaigns in an agency structure mm-hmm. across a few few different brands and really understand what I was doing, right. um, as opposed to being asked to do it on the side of a bunch of other television production responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So I went to an agency and, and worked there for a couple of years and really, oh my goodness, you know, this was before you could speed dial things or just hit a, hit a button and get a number. And I, I used to be able to tell you every area code for every newspaper and maybe their general number. No <laughs> kidding. Yeah. Calling them yeah. You know, repeatedly, repeatedly. I had a television show or a, a debut of something. And so, you know, I can still probably rattle off zip codes across the country. That's cool. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> general numbers, you know, I love ABC, that. Four, five, six, seven, 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 the New York times, five, five, six, one, two, three, four, you know, you'd like know these for yeah. the rest of your life, but now you don't know any, anyone's number because you nope. don't have to. No, cause <laughs> it's all in your phone. I mean, it's the whole world has changed since we started. And so that agency that really, so that really got you really going on the client services side of our business, I suspect. Yes. And, and I worked specifically with sports illustrated and at that time, they were exploding into so many different areas and really um, 
broadening their their offerings. And um, I was hired by the, to to work on the team that did television, but it ended up becoming their kids, their women, the Olympics, you know, all of their additional things beyond the weekly magazine. And it was just such a heady time to be in media. Mm-hmm. And and that's to me was sort of the beginning of the first big change that I think that I've witnessed in public relations, which which started as this blurring of um, news, you know, Time Inc., where Sports Illustrated sat, was so news was different than the publishing sales side. It mm-hmm. was church and state. This was the house that Henry Luce built. Yeah. It, you could, when you walked in, you went to a editorial party at Christmas and you went to a sales party at Christmas. They mm-hmm. did not mingle. Interesting. They were, it was a very, so real and you were so proud of that independence mm-hmm. um, that permeated every inch of the, I mean, news was news was news, period. Yeah. And there's no, no getting around that. Um, and then there became these things called blogs that sort of posed as if they were reporters, not done by reporters. And they, the rules of engagement were so fuzzy and they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have editors. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how to report, they weren't fair, they weren't balanced, right. they, were, they were vindictive sometimes. It Absolutely. was a very weird shift to this, this new paradigm that really wasn't news at all. But we had to kind of pretend when we were dealing with them that they were real yeah. and they were very real. Absolutely. They, right? Do you remember that? that I was do. I remember being profoundly confused by whether or not I was supposed to send them news items. Um, Should I be adding them to my media list? Should I be treating them like a, and it was not, it was different. In fact, many of the blogs that that I worked on uh, or worked with early on in that evolution were actually insulted if I sent them a press release that like, nope, that's not how we work. And it was really, it took, it was a really steep learning curve to figure out how that fit into the media space. Cause it was still very much in the media. Yeah. And because they didn't have maybe any journalism backgrounds or if they did, they hadn't been under an editor. Mm. Um, Cause those editors are fierce yeah. on the reporters. I mean, the fact checking and the, the go back, do this, go back, do that. You don't have it right. I mean, that training is huge and it was missing. And I just remember there was, there was one, uh, blog reporter blogger I worked with that always had things wrong always. Mm. And, and the volume of and real corrections, you know, like stated fact corrections was always so real. And I remember saying to him because I was friendly with him, you know, you, you might want to get into a, some kind of situation where you're under an editor, you find an editor mentor because you're not representing yourself well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, how did you know, that, how did that go over? Okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was friendly enough. It wasn't mean spirited, but it, it, that was very difficult. And I would say that today it's, it's, it's swung even further. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the interesting thing to me is to see outlets like the Times and CNN and Forbes adding these sale components where they do product reviews and you're you're shipping your products to to people for free, mm-hmm. which is just crazy. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of. Um, 
to people that that kind of seem like they might be a reporter, you're still not really sure on a legitimate site. Yeah, doing something and they just kind of sold out, and that's that's been kind of upsetting to me. You know, mm. I know it's a necessary. You know, as a business person, of course, everybody has to make money. They're monetizing this channel. Right. I understand, but I kind of hate it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. And and that's the big thing. Like, since I started the podcast, I've almost entirely like the audience, the the folks that I've talked to have either been journalists or adjacent like you and I, Um, I've not really spent a lot of time getting to know um, the big business side of it, because I really felt like that side of the business, the big business side, exactly like you're talking about. is part of where the anger comes from um, the public towards media in general. Like the anger is not necessarily for the journalists as much as it is for the the own you know the ownership or the companies that own these big platforms. And I feel like if we continue down the path of negativity and uh, unkindness and and overall just I mean, it's just, to me, it's very upsetting to see how on just how poorly journalists are treated. There really is a very important role for them in, in the U S in the globe. Right. So that to me was part of the reason why I started the conversation, because I wanted to talk specifically to journalists about the work that they do and the beat they care about and what it is they're doing. And it's just, um, it's been like kind of a really fun for me journey to learn and understand and and get to know some of these folks because they really do they go into it with the right in the right headspace and it's not until that they're in sort of the process and the machine that they realize that there are definitely some things that are are obstacles to success right right that's for sure well one of the one of the projects I've been working on of late which has been really fun because you know the opportunity to work with news reporters is a completely different experience than maybe some of the day-to-day reporters you might you might encounter in the course of a regular day for a regular company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've been working with a friend of mine who wrote a book um, for a former Russian Duma that has been exiled. He was the only person to vote no on the Russian invasion of Crimea years ago and he got exiled. And so he's now living in Ukraine and um, fighting for democracy in Russia. And so his book is um, Does Putin Have to Die is the name of the book. And he's been pulling together a Congress of former politicians from Russia to um, help in writing a new um, a, a new constitution for Russia, should there become a moment where the country could rethink its its push to, toward a democracy. And it's been really, really interesting. And, and to work with reporters globally that cover Eastern Europe mm-hmm. and war news is so dramatically different. And also just, it's just so wonderful because they're really doing the work of a journalist that they trained for and studied for and have worked years for. And, you know, they'll, they'll suss out a story and do an interview and come back 
and their editor will change directions on them. And it's very comforting because you feel like you're in a zone that is so um, professional and, you know, just really about the details and really about the facts. And, you know, it's just been really, I love that. I cannot, I can't wait to read it. I've just put it on my list. I, I can't wait to read it because I think you're right. I mean, just, what was it just yesterday? 31 year old wall street journal writer, Evan Gershkovitz is captured right for the first time, uh, since the cold war. Right. And it's, um, to me, it's terrifying. 31, 31 years old, just doing his job for a legitimate news outlet. Um, and, you know, everyone has weighed in, right? Other countries, our president, everyone else has said, let him go. Um, but to me, like 31 years old, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine. Um, and so that, that's a fascinating, it's, it sounds fascinating, the book. I can't wait to get it. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting. The, um, so I think that's the other big shift. Lisa is digit from from digital online news versions to content creators. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, you know the 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 bloggers have become even more sophisticated, and a lot of the day to day lifestyle news and things like that has just shifted over to content creators. Mm-hmm. Um, super fun and a different and a different aspect. So I guess, you know, when you think about communications and you look across the array of, of ways in, you know, there's very corporate, there's, you know, breaking news, there's crisis, there's lifestyle. Um, and, and each of them have leaned on different, different kind of media opportunities now mm-hmm. that are, are so specific that, you know, you need to know what a TikToker would do, you know, and that, that just right. becomes, you know, uh, uh, you, you kind of have to know everything now. Yes, and absolutely. Ready to do and communicate across channels. I, I think that um, in the, there's a lot of fun in the lifestyle, but boy, the, um, the breaking news and, and what's happening globally and working with Reuters or BBC International is so much more exhilarating to me right now. I don't mm-hmm. know why. It just is, you know, just is. Um, they're totally, they're totally different. The U.S. is, I can't imagine it's like this everywhere. Well, I know it isn't like this everywhere, but how do you approach that? So Robin Communications is um, a multi-client based and with mo- many, many smart people working underneath um, your direction. Tell me a little bit about the work that you do at the firm. The kind Is there a specialty? Are you guys generalists? Tell me a little bit about your business and your work that you do. Sure. So when I started the company, it was right after COVID. Mm -hmm. And um, I was fortunate in that a lot of, you know, in in the last uh, in-house job I had was at Nutrisystem. And we had been acquired by a company called Tivity Health. And by virtue of that acquisition, you know, a lot of the C-suite left, our board of directors dissolved because you don't need two board of directors. And I was one of the last you know, senior executives that remained on. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was there about a year and a half. uh, And all of the team, all of my C-suite went on to other jobs, other opportunities. And so when I started Robin Communications, I was really lucky in that I had board members, my, you know, my first CEO, my second CEO, both of my CMOs, um, 
reach out to me with projects and things to do. That's amazing. Yeah, it was COVID. And so, and and publishing, you know, I came out of publishing. Mm -hmm. I was at Rodale for between Sports Illustrated and Rodale and the New York Times Magazine group. Um, and Times Mirror magazines. I was I was in magazines for the bulk of my career, and publishing has just you know been a very declining industry, yeah. very hard to be employed in. And all of my very very smart, talented, and senior publishing friends um, were looking for work too. And and changing industries is not easy. No, you know, no, you know often people won't even give you a a shot. And these are some of the most talented people I, I worked with at the heady times of media in New York. Right. And, um, and so I was able to tap so many people that I had worked with to help on a bunch of work that just came all at once. You know, no one was hiring, but they still needed work done. Yeah. And so we went from, you know, one little client to, you know, maybe 15 in very short order. Wow. And, we just quickly assembled teams and, and happily everyone knew what they were doing. You know, oh, that's it was awesome. a really great, a really great group. And then over the last um, year or so, people have transitioned into those in-house jobs that they'd been looking for and um, budgets have changed. And so our, our project, we're more project work, a few, a few retainers, but mostly focused around CEO and executive communications. Oh, interesting. Um, which is what I find the most, you know, the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, I like to know everyone. I like to get into the business of what everyone's trying to accomplish and then help communicate that effectively. That's, and so we do a lot of that kind of work now. That's great. And you're based out of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and you do still quite a bit of work. I mean, it's virtual. So you do work pretty much everywhere. I would imagine. Yes. doesn't matter where I am, but it yeah. was all, you know, you, I, I released earnings from a tarmac in LA one year. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> we can do you know, anything any anywhere. Absolutely. Any executive that ever had to travel can do their job from anywhere. Yeah. So. No question. I remember okay, being okay. worried. That's- Were you worried at all? I mean, so, you know, you and I are old enough to remember that like, you know, when the cuts come, communications is first to go. I mean, or at yeah. least it used to be that way. Right. So when yeah, COVID when COVID started rolling up and things were happening and things were closing, I thought, uh Oh, you know, this is going to be of a concern of concern for, for me, for my business, for my practice and the, the clients that I was working with. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. It shocked me that it was the opposite. It's when I got really busy. And like you said, there were people that were moving. Um, there were, uh, there were clients that came in that needed crisis uh, help because there were things that were happening in their space because of COVID. There were other sort of messaging issues. I was so surprised because I fully expected to be recreating myself again. Well, I did a little bit, I guess, when I started a podcast, but um, right. that was wild that whole time during COVID. So good for you. I'm glad that that really worked out in your favor. Yeah, yeah. The um, internal communications, I think, really led the way uh, and crisis mm-hmm. during COVID. Those were the two. Yeah. And I think internal communications has continued to be of importance as the hybrid work model continues. Um, there's a real need to you know, just be inspiring and be informing and be doubling down on your mission and vision and values with your team because... Um, they're not in the office every day. Right. That's exactly right. 
But they don't want to come into the office either. I know that. I mean, really, they'd prefer to have it kind of a hybrid model. (laughs) I I just read this. I was just zipping through. I don't even know what the outlet was. It wasn't, it was like a pay to play business outlet, Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> with one of the many almost, <laughs> yeah almost stories and i was reading it and 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 the the company profile talked about how you had to really work hard to bring your employees back to the office and that's why they installed these these uh this kind of glass in the building because it's efficient and blah 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 i'm like your employees don't give a shit about the light <laughs> in the glass and- nope <laughs> Somebody should have probably taken a pen to that copy. Totally <laughs> agree. Right. Right. Exactly. Oh exactly. What kind of um, what kind of advice do you think is the most important? Or the is there is there a, if you can think back on some of the clients that you've worked on over the course of the last couple of years, what kinds of advice are you giving now to CEOs as it relates to the engagement that you have with them? Well, I still think there are two kinds of CEOs. Mm-hmm. So there are CEOs who have a proclivity toward communicating and wanting a certain experience and are 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 open to and think that it's an important part of the overall product mix and communication mix and mm-hmm. business mix. That makes sense. And that want a strategy that aligns with their business objectives and you know they they see value in that. And then I still think there's a huge amount of, of CEOs that just consider it kind of a necessary evil and, and maybe they're not really paid to care about it <laughs> and um, yeah. they're bonus on other things. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's just kind of a, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, per, and that person may not ever actually be in the room where things are, you know, you're just in the cleanup crew. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the benefit of, of being out of house is, you know, I can support any of any of the needs anywhere in between. And and every business has its own reason for that, their structure or not. They might be overcoming, um, you know, disruption or focused on other things. But I think the most fun job for me has always been when you have a seat at the table and you're a business partner and you're part of a discussion. Um, and And so I think in terms of of advice is, you know, you're, you're the expert in the communications channel and, but you sure better know everything about what all of your business units are doing. So you understand what their objectives are, what their concerns are. I, 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 I think that you might be the most informed at a certain level of, of any executive in the company. And though you probably can't go deep in some areas, mm-hmm. you're probably the most second most informed and recognizing that and having a respect for um, that in yourself and stepping up and, and, and having um, a contribution that's appropriate and relevant is really important. And you just have to become a trusted partner and, and know when to offer suggestions and know when not to. I, I always get annoyed when I'm in a room with a, a PR person that is so um, unable to see beyond the communication they want to do mm. versus seeing a bigger picture of all the components of what's happening and realizing there's a where where your sort of story has to live. And um, I, I think that's probably the biggest hurdle between earning your team's respect or not. That makes a lot of sense. 
That makes a ton of sense. Unrealistic goals that you have and you just really want to do this thing and it doesn't really fit with three other groups, but you're just in love with your story (laughs) and, and you try to push it and, and the executives that have money on the table against something are like, that doesn't really work for me. Right. Um, And, and figuring out how to actually support your team versus being in a silo. Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. Before I feel like I, I absolutely meeting and you're like, what are you talking about? Mm Mm-hmm. That yeah. Is so separate from the business. It's or not aligned. Yeah, because people have sort of wrapped their brain around what it is they think the narrative ought to be. Um yeah. and not having the self-awareness to know that it's not just about sort of seeing it through that lens. You have to hear all of the points of view. It's so interesting you say that too about the two CEOs, Robin, because periodically when I do training, um, especially for a high, high level um executive, I almost always want to know how willing they are uh to learn, change, grow in their communications as it relates to whether it's public speaking, whether it's interpersonal communications, whatever. Um, and the most receptive of those that I train are the ones that are like the first example you gave, those that have a proclivity for uh, communication, that understand that it's part of the it's part of the whole organism, right? Or, or you know, it's just something that has to happen in order to be part of who they are. The harder ones to get and train and be successful with are the ones that see communications as just, um, you know, something they have to do. Right. They're often the ones that, that start a sentence with, how should we spin this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, as I can't even believe it cause we could talk for another hour, Robin, but we are towards the end of our 30 minute conversation. So I, let's keep up the conversation. I'm coming back to you for another episode cause there's more to discuss. Um, but I have to ask at the end of our conversation, always, I want to know who it is I should talk to for another episode. Well, I'm thinking that my reporter book author friend, Greg Stebbin, who wrote, does Putin have to die would be a great guest, especially given this Russian journalists um, being detained or kidnapped or pick the word um, because he's spent so much time in Ukraine and Poland working on, you know, on basically liberating Ukraine that I think he'd have a lot to say. I think it'd be a a different kind of conversation. I love it. No, that sounds amazing. I would, and I would totally, I would love to have him. So I'll make sure that we follow up separately to make sure that I connect with him. Robin, this was so fun. Thank you so much for your time today. Let's keep up. Let's keep up the conversation. I'm coming back to you for more questions. All right, Lisa, have a great weekend. And that's today's Friday Reporter podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.